What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to talk about the much-anticipated new album from the Montreal band, The Arcade Fire. We'll tell you if the record lives up to the hype. Plus, Iggy and the Stooges are back with a new record. We'll talk about their amazing career with one of the original members of the band. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. That music and that album is at the top of the news this week because that's from the Arcade Fire, one of the most anticipated albums of 2007, just now being released, the Arcade Fire, Neon Bible. The name of the song is Black Mirror, a dark-themed record, as you can tell by that particular song, which is kind of surprising because it's it's hard to believe that the band could go darker than it did with its (laughs) 2004 album, which was titled Funeral. Nobody knew who this band was in 2004. Everybody knows who they are now. Here's the backstory on that. In 2004, they put out this record called Funeral. It was written and recorded around the time of nine family members or friends dying. Uh, the album was about confronting death, transcending death, and, and it turned into a surprise hit. The band went from playing 200, 300 capacity clubs in the fall of 2004 into a headlining act at uh, major festivals like Coachella and Lollapalooza, won the endorsement of major performers like David Bowie. U2 was blasting their music before they took the stage on their stadium tour. All sorts of tastemakers coming to their shows. Michael Stipe of R.E.M., David Byrne of the Talking Heads, raving about this band. They went on to become the biggest-selling act in the 17-year history of the Chapel Hill, North Carolina-based Merge Records label, one of the most respected indie labels in the land, Funeral sold 320,000 copies in the United States alone, went platinum, which is 100,000 sales in Canada. Now they're back with album number two. Neon Bible is about to be released. Nobody knew who this band was uh, three years ago. Now everybody is paying attention, and at least anybody who's been paying attention to independent music in the last three years. So Neon Bible comes with a lot of baggage attached. There's a lot of people watching this record thinking it could be the biggest-selling independent release of all time. We'll find out about that soon enough, but here's a taste of the record. It's called Intervention, track from Neon Bible on Sound Opinions. I can taste the fear, lift me up and take me out of here. Don't want to fight, don't want to die, just want to hear me cry. Who's going to throw the very first stone? Hear the soul just sing. 
That's a song called Intervention by the Arcade Fire from their second full album, The Neon Bible. Most of this album was recorded in Montreal in a small church. They went to Budapest to record an orchestra and a choir. It's indicative of the album in its two main themes, Greg. The last album, as you said, Funeral, dealt with personal loss, dealing with loved ones' deaths, gloom and doom on that very personal level. This album deals with the big picture. There is apocalypse on the global world political stage. A lot of talk about soldiers in war. You heard some of it in intervention. And there is the usefulness of religion. Is it useful or is it a sham? Those are pretty heavy concepts, all delivered in a very gothic package by the leader of this band, the vocalist, the guitarist, the primary songwriter, the visionary, Mr. Wynn Butler. He and his brother, who was also in the group, grew up in Texas. They're the only two Americans in the band. Mm -hmm. Wynn Butler met his his wife, who's in the group, uh, Regine Chassain, in Quebec. She was singing lounge standards in an art gallery (laughs) when Mm -hmm. when they met. Okay, there's a level of pretension in this group. There is there is no denying that. The genre, you've probably heard us, we we tend to spit these things out in passing, sometimes orc pop, orchestral pop. Mm -hmm. When you see them live, uh, have now expanded from seven to ten pieces, you've got ten musicians on stage playing everything from hurdy-gurdy and accordion and cello and violins to drums. Lots of drums. (laughs) That's the key, I think, in appreciating the Arcade Fire. Seems ironic to talk about a band that all the bloggers love to dissect Wynn Butler's lyrics, and it's orchestral pop, like I said. You've got orchestras on this record, and yet I think that the key of this group is the rhythm. They take this very big, driving, rollicking, slightly syncopated stadium rhythm, the sort of thing that the Feelys did or the Strokes do, but they blow it up to like an anthemic level. Mm -hmm. And when it works, it's amazing. It cannot be denied. didn't work for me initially on this record. I listened to this record half a dozen times and thought, wow, this is bombastic. It's overblown. It's operatic. There's Sturm und Drang. It's over the top. They're not doing it. 
Eventually it kicked in, but only half of it. I, I started to find myself subconsciously while it's on in the background moving in time to that big rhythm. The problem is the rhythm's only on six of the 11 tracks here. Hmm. There are five dreadfully dull songs on this album that do not work. No Cars Go, Ocean of Noise, My Body is a Cage, Black Wave, Bad Vibrations. Then, uh, in those cases, the gothic pretensions of Wynn Butler sink him. He's, he's no Lou Reed, he's no Bob Dylan, he's not even a Nick Cave who does gothic melodrama very well. In those cases, I think the album just, just flops on itself. Yes, it's absolutely a heavy record. I think the, the key for me on this band, uh, Jim, although a lot of people loved Funeral, uh, a lot of people thought it was the best album of 2004, I was never a big believer in this band until I saw them live. I think they've got some flaws as, as songwriters. I think a lot of the songs tend to sound the same. Uh, I don't think the melodies are pronounced enough. I, I think the arrangements, they tend to pile things up in the arrangements, but, you know, they go for these big anthem crescendos, and it gets to be like an old trick. It's like that quiet verse, loud chorus thing yeah. that Nirvana did. You know, you do that first couple of times, you think, wow, that's amazing. You do it the ninth or tenth time, you go, okay, I've, heard, I've kind yeah. of heard that formula. arrangement it's already. Formula. Live, it works fabulously. I saw the show in New York City in a church. I mean, in a church, a very appropriate setting. Church is key to this thing. And, and it sounded terrific in that setting. Uh, the songs definitely come alive. On record, not so impressive, I don't think. You know, the dark themes don't help. I think the key to this record are a couple of lines from the song Windowsill. I don't want to fight in a holy war. I don't want the salesman knocking at the door. I don't want to live in America no more. That's Wynn Butler. Former a, Texan. Former Texan, now living in Montreal, talking about his country. and going around, the, going around the world and getting a perspective on America as, as a traveling musician and really not hearing a lot of complimentary thoughts about America out there. So a lot of those dark feelings about what's going on in this country, how Christianity is being used as a, a cudgel, a way of defending a holy war in the Middle East, these kind of issues are percolating through this record. A lot of big, dark themes, but I think the songwriting is where the record sort of falls down. Yeah, well, they're, they're not voiced particularly well, Greg. A lot of it's overblown, a lot of it's flaccid. Like I said, six great tracks five stinky ones on the sound opinions <laughs> scale of buy it burn it trash it that qualifies as a as a burn it record yeah it's a, a very ambitious band by all means go see them live the records don't do them justice and this one certainly does not it's a burn it record sample it then go see the band live i think you'll see a huge difference You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We are now going to talk about the past and the present of the Stooges, one of the greatest punk bands in rock history. Now I 
Man, oh man, Greg, there is one of the all-time great punk rock songs, I Want to Be Your Dog, by the Stooges from their debut album, 1969, self-titled, came out on Electro Records, the home of the doors. What is this noise that this band uh, was making in Detroit? Not even in Detroit, in Ann Arbor. Yeah. You know, there's the college in Ann Arbor, but that's not the side of the tracks they came from. Yeah. They were from the wrong side of the tracks. Obviously, the Stooges are, are considered one of the cornerstone bands in punk. They wrote the book. We were talking about the Ramones a couple of weeks ago. The second half of the story was told by the Stooges. The Ramones were kind of about good times on the dark side of town. Uh, the Stooges were frightening. Yeah, they, absolutely. Iggy Pop, otherwise known as Jim Oosterberg, to his friends in uh, Michigan, uh, the Ashton brothers, Ron and Scott, and Dave Alexander on bass. I mean, these are four dead-end kids. I mean, uh, the world's forgotten boy, as Iggy Pop yeah. once sang. Uh, they were not the cool people in town. They were consciously set out to sort of change everything that they saw around them. They were disgusted with the music they were hearing. They wanted to confront people, attack the audience, challenge the audience in ways that uh, other bands weren't doing at the time. They made the MC5 look rather mainstream, their, their big brother band in the Detroit scene at the time. Confrontational live shows. Recorded their first album with John Cale, the Velvet Underground co-founder, in 1969. Followed it up with their masterpiece, Funhouse, in 1970. And then, as the band was basically breaking apart, David Bowie resurrected them for Raw Power in 1973. And then they went out in a hail of bottles and phlegm yeah. and, and thrown objects uh, l- l- soon after. Literally. On a live album called Metallic KO, you can hear the Hells Angels in uh, Michigan throwing bottles at Iggy Pop and knocking him unconscious. The <laughs> album ends, their career ended, as Iggy was knocked unconscious <laughs> on stage. This is a great group. We're talking about them because they've reunited. Came back together a couple of years ago with the two Ashton brothers, Iggy Pop and Mike Watt of the Minutemen uh, on bass, and uh, have made an album recorded in Chicago with Steve Albini, well-known punk purist, audio verite recordist. Yes. Doesn't want to be an engineer or a producer. He's a recordist captured in their glory, loud in a room. We're going to get to that new album. That's the news, the weirdness. But we want to look back first at the incredible three-album career of the Stooges. Let's talk to the original Stooges guitarist, Ron Ashton. Uh, Ron, does it feel like a, a bit of a vindication? Because here's a band that... Uh, all the history books, all the rock history books will tell you that the Stooges changed rock history. Uh, and yet at the time, there was a lot of puzzled looks when the band would play. Not a lot of people bought the records. Now you're playing to, to well, capacity uh, audiences. It was worse than that, Greg. There <laughs> yeah. was sheer hatred. May I <laughs> they were getting bottles you, thrown May I refer yeah. you to Metallic KO? Yeah. 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 Where's yeah. the sound of Iggy being knocked unconscious? Uh, rock, uh, rock action, as, as he was also known. Ron Ashton was better at ducking, though. Well, yes, my brother calls himself Rock Action because of his tattoo he got. But in a way, yes, I do feel vindicated a bit, uh, but I think it's all part of this crazy plan. It's very Stooges, you know. Like you said in the beginning, we didn't sell a lot of product. We had little pockets of places where we had fans, but there were many places where, you know, things were thrown, but, but places like the Boston Tea Party when we opened up for 10 years after, and when we finished our first two songs for a little pause, there's like four people applauding in this full club. <laughs> and that's our fan club president and her vice president's secretary and whatever. <laughs> but that was part of the fun. We kind of enjoyed that, the booze, you know, crowd <laughs> booing and that reaction. To get any kind of reaction out of somebody, something that strong was cool. But now it really is great to be able to go and play and have the crowds know the songs, totally love it, enjoy it, 
it makes it so much more fun for us. You, you know, uh, Ron, the fact that you are recording a new record and have finished recording a new record, the weirdness is going to be coming out in a matter of days, as we said. There was also the opportunity there to to really screw it up uh, in terms of you've got these three iconic albums in the Stooges' back catalog that were recorded in the late 60s, early 70s. So basically an unblemished legacy. Do you feel like there's a sense of, well, people are going to be comparing this fourth record to those earlier three records, and we're putting our heads on the chopping block again? Well, we never thought of that until other people started saying that. And then it's like, uh... But you've got to know that it's the natural process. You're bound to change. When people ask me, I'm going, what do you want me to do, play the songs on Funhouse backwards? It's a different producer, a different time. Everything's bound to change. But for me, we kept the right path because it's still the Stooges. It has the sex, the anger and the dark humor, you know, poking fun at things you don't like. So for as far as I'm concerned, it turned out well. Did, did you feel that uh, you accomplished what you wanted to do? I mean, do you feel like it is sort of picking up where Funhouse left off, the last album that you were seriously involved with, the songwriting? Do you feel like you're picking up there 30-plus years later? Or do you feel like you had to sort of reinvent the band a little bit for the needs of what, you know, a 21st century audience are going to be like? Well, actually, no, I just, we never worried about that. It's just the Stooges. And we just got back together and, like I said, got on that same path of playing. It's like all those years in between, for me at least, I think for my brother and Iggy also, they just sort of evaporated. It was just, and the best thing for me, fun. It had to be fun. It's not right to overthink stuff. That's what the Stooges really are about. Because even our first two albums, if there's any connection, we were just living that life in those time periods. We're talking to Ron Ashton of the Stooges about making the band's first album in almost 35 years. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more talk about the Stooges and a review of their new album, The Weirdness. Can I come over tonight? Can I come over tonight? What do you think I wanna do? That's right. Can I come over tonight? I said we will have a real cool time tonight. I said we will have a real cool time tonight. I said we will have a real cool time. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're talking to guitarist Ron Ashton, one of the founding members of the Stooges. Oh, look out. Let's go back to 68, 69. 
when the Stooges first came together. I mean, there was a there was a real primitivism, right? I mean, wasn't your brother originally playing on oil cans for drums? And and I mean, I remember reading or hearing John Cale tell me this story of like when he walked in, uh, I guess in Ann Arbor and saw you for the first time. It was like th- these guys are just primitives. <laughs> or is that exaggerated? Well, first off, you got to realize that. Iggy was an accomplished drummer. He could play drums quite well. He actually went to Chicago and studied under Sam Lay, who played yeah. drums with Butterfield. Mm-hmm. So my brother also had played drums in the school, and he also played the harmonica. And myself, I've already played guitar. I took lessons in accordions, and I, I had a high school band where I played bass guitar. We, I actually played every weekend. So we did have a musical background, and the the thing was, when we got together, we wanted to do something different. We didn't want to play sets of, of music. And I've never written a song before, and I think neither has Iggy. Hmm. So getting together, just trying to do something different, starting out with Don't Use the Drum Sets, Timbales and 50-gallon oil drums. <laughs> Two so that's, of them. that's true. Yeah. That is true. And then for us, we invented our own instruments. Used the washboard with a contact mic. We had a 300 gallon oil drum <laughs> that we dropped a microphone down into and would just take like a, a little sledgehammer and beat it. It was an amazing sound. So the, so the primitivism was, was as a statement more than it was uh, that was a limit of your abilities. Yeah. It was so, we wanted to just strip ourselves down and we wanted to really be something different. Well, that's interesting because, you know, it's generally perceived that the Stooges were considered the baby brother band to the MC5. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was almost a package deal that got both bands signed to Elektra Records. And then John Cale, who'd been in the Velvet Underground, comes in and produces. And there's that, that spiritual connection. You know, the Velvets had blazed a path in the midst of the Summer of Love saying, wait a minute, there's room for darker, heavier music. And now it's the next step is the Stooges. What was it like working with him? And, and did, were you fans of the Velvets? Oh, yes. We were fans. We loved the music. So we were excited about that. But I think for John Cale, it was only a booby prize because <laughs> it was his first time being a staff producer with Electra. Mm. So who else to stick anybody with that's a staff <laughs> producer at Electra is the new guy, the weird guy. So we kind of felt a little kinship because he wasn't more like us out of the mainstream. So we go in and we start to record and... We're used to playing how we like to play, which is a Marshall stack on 10. And this is just a little room, and he's like, oh, oh fellas, wait, wait a minute. You, you don't do that. This is a recording studio. You don't play a Marshall stack on 10. So we had a little sit-down strike where we actually did go into the, the vocal booth and sat on the floor and lit candles, and, and we, had a, we were on strike. Wow. We had a strike. And then the compromise, we did come up with a compromise, nine. <laughs> so we went down to nine. So after that, it was fine. Once we got over that little hump, we was, it was my first time in the studio. And I know my brothers, I think Iggy had been in the studio a few times. Hmm. But it was a perfect situation where you didn't have that high-pressure New York producer breathing down your throats. And he actually joined in without asking with his viola to do the, the opus, We Will Fall. Yeah, yeah, which so takes he, up that much that really of the... made it. I mean, for me, that was like, oh man, that it made the whole tune. 
one more question before we leave the Stooges' self-titled first album. A song like 1969. I mean, to me, that rhythm is uh, one of the things that's so influential. It was a rhythm we hadn't really heard in rock before. You know, that kind of Bo Diddley thing yeah. turned into so primitive. Well, it's 1969, okay. Walk across the USA. It's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do It's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do I gotta confess, I, I, I will make a confession, uh, Ron. I'm a little disappointed that th- that rhythm's not on the weirdness, the new record. Because man, I just that that was one of a kind, and nobody else in rock's ever done that. Well, it is in a weird way because that's a beat of 1969, because we love Bo Diddley. I mean, come on, Bo Diddley. Sure. And my brother came up with that, because we wanted the same thing. We go, we I want a Bo Diddley beat tune. So he came up with something a little more intricate for the weirdness on the Mexican guy. Mm. That song was actually, he had that drum beat. It's not quite like that, but it's it, it's the same weird beat that he's invented. It's kind of a little off, but really cool. So I built that song, that riff, uh, around that beat. Ron, you were talking about the natural process, the evolution, uh, listening to stuff like John Coltrane. Obviously, that leads us to Funhouse, the second and last Stooges album that you had a major role in. What a far-reaching album, uh, this this mixture of avant-jazz noise and the raw, primitive rock and roll. Lester Bangs famously wrote a 30,000-word uh article about it. and I, I last spoke to you when I interviewed you for my, my biography of Lester um, but basically saying this was as great as western art will ever get I mean the, the praise he hyped on, on, on you guys on, on that album did you know what you were doing were you setting out to make something so ambitious what we did for that record was we were out once we made the first record we were out play 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 got book and agent we're out there every time we took a little break from the road we try to come up with a new piece of music or two to integrate into the set. So it evolved that Funhouse, all the things that are on there became the major part of our set. And that's when Don Gallucci was sent by Electra for it's time to make another record. Mm. He'd come and see some live shows, and that's what he wanted to capture. So we just played our live show live in the studio. So it was a totally different trip going in to do Funhouse. Mm-hmm. The thing that was uh, unique about that record, Ron, was uh, you know this this melding not only of what you had done on the first record with this very amazing rhythmic thing going on, and the great riffs that you were writing, but you added that element of the hard funk that James Brown was doing and the Coltrane esque free jazz kind of stuff with the saxophone being introduced. Was the saxophone obviously the addition of that on that record, sort of a very uh, frank? acknowledgement that, that Coltrane was big and you wanted to incorporate some of that stuff into what you were doing in terms of the kind of influences you were melding? It's once again, that was what we were really into at that time. We were just really getting into uh, Pharaoh Sanders, John Coltrane, Archie Shep. So the same with, we love James Brown always. We were like little spoiled kids. <laughs> yes, we like that, so we're going to use some of that. We're going to play with that. Hmm. And then when the Doors did that sax thing on Touch Me, uh, we liked that. So the idea was, gee, we're having fun. This is what we like. We knew Steve McKay. He, had been, he was already in several bands in Ann Arbor. So the idea was just, hey, 
we got these songs. Hey, it's really cool. You can do it right here. And then at the end of the set, we had test, uh, we were freaking out. We were doing the free, at the end of the set, we like to go, what we call just let one go, which means, well, freak out, freak out, just make a <laughs> bunch of noise and stuff. So we wound up figuring out a way to incorporate that into the funhouse set. And it was only great that, hey, let's get Steve to come and play on that. We're talking to Ron Ashton of the Stooges. What happened after Funhouse? You're not on Raw Power, is that? I played bass. You played bass. You, you got bounced down. Uh, Williamson comes in. James Williamson plays guitar, right? Yes. What was happening to the band? And what was happening? Raw Power is a great record on its own, but it's very different than Funhouse. Mm-hmm. Well, and what happened was once again we made the record play, play, play. Then, uh oh, somebody bringing bad drugs. <laughs> and everyone but myself, and I'm proud to admit I never touched it, I watched guys starting to, where the the fun was the music, mm. now it's become something else. And I saw the drugs take over and the music getting smaller and smaller. Playing was only a way to make money to get the drugs. So I, just to pump things up and try to change things a little bit, I thought, well, let's for fun have another guitar player. And in my high school band, the first show I did as the replacement in this band, James Williamson played guitar in it. So it was my first show, his last show, before he was sent to reform school in New York. (laughs) I got him in the band, and then, uh uh-oh, great, another druggie. So him and Iggy, they buddied up, and it just got to the point where Iggy was too wasted. Same thing, I've heard the statement twice. I'm mentally and physically exhausted. I need to take a break. Mm. So he did. He took time off when he felt a little stronger. He thought, well, I'm going to go out and find something. He went to New York. Just so happens David Bowie was there. David Bowie, Iggy fan. They have lunch. Go to the manager. Manager takes them the next day up to Clive Davies at CBS. Iggy's got a record deal. So he takes James with him instead of me. Mm. And then that takes you back to what I said. He called me up and said, we've auditioned 150 drummers and bass players. We don't like any of them. Mm. What are you guys doing? You and your brother want to play? So sure, it's a chance to get out of the house and get to go to England and get to play. And the thought always was that eventually I would come back and play guitar again. But it didn't turn out that way because James, he wanted the uh, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards trip. Mm. So hence the music is a little different. It's good stuff. I like it. But I also feel like, you know, the orphan that, uh, or the kid that sits at the little baby table at Thanksgiving mm. where the other guys are sitting <laughs> at the big table. Cheetah with a hat full of napalm I'm a runaway son of the nuclear aid bomb I am the world's forgotten boy The one who searches and destroys Given the way the band ended, you know, getting bottled at that last show <laughs> Iggy, Iggy is in kind of a state He's obviously uh, addicted 
to drugs. The band wasn't super well loved at that point. How did you, how were you guys able to mend the fences 30 years later and come back together and make another record? Well, that's kind of a cool story because there was no need to mend. It was, I hadn't seen him. I saw Iggy play when he was a solo artist in Detroit a couple times, but I never went backstage. I think I've talked to him on the phone twice in 25 years. So I was a little nervous. He called me up one day and said, well, hey, I've got a project. Are you, uh, you can say no right now. You can say yes or no in two weeks. I said, no, I love projects. I say yes right now. It was just a natural little awkwardness for the first couple minutes. Then we just went over to the 11th Street Diner and had some wine, ate some food, and I could just feel all those years going shrinking. Mm. It's like, remember the time that you did this? Remember the time we were? <laughs> and once you start that reminiscing, I could just feel every, the things lightening up. And by the time we got in the studio, it was gone. Hmm. We have that really strong bond. Well, there was an intensity. I mean, you guys lived together during the years you were making those yep. records, right? Yep. And that's why all that was so easy without explanations to get back together again because of all that just strength of unity and all the incredible you know, tragedies and hilarious situations that we've been through. Ron Ashton, uh, thank you so much for being our guest on Sound Opinions. All right, see you guys later. Take care, Ron. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Boy, we just talked to Ron Ashton, and you can see the value of the man right there. That's a classic Ron Ashton riff from the Stooges' new album, The Weirdness, their first in 34 years. We're going to review the record in just a second. But before we review it, let's play a track from it. It's called Free and Freaky on Sound Opinions. That's Free and Freaky from The Stooges, their fourth album, their first in 34 years, The Weirdness. Let's get this straight up front, Jim. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it right here out on the table. This is no substitute for the self-titled debut album, for Funhouse or Raw Power. Not Heck even no. close. Not no. even in the same ballpark. But that said, it's not an embarrassment. It's a perfectly adequate record. Uh, four guys in a room making music. Ron Ashton sounds terrific on guitar. His brother, Scott, sounds pretty good on drums. There are a few of those great groove 
type songs that the Stooges specialized in. Uh, we talked about this in the uh, interview with, uh, with Ron Ashton. These guys had a sense of groove that was unique to all of the garage bands that imitated them ever since. Uh, a lot of that has to do with Scott Ashton's drumming. And there are a few instances on this record where I hear that great, greasy groove coming back again. Ron's guitar riffs are huge. Mike Watt does a very solid job on bass. He sort of dials down that hyperactive bass playing that he did in the Minutemen to sort of serve the songs in the way the original bassist Dave Alexander did. I think the weak link on this record actually is the, uh, the, the star in the band, Iggy Pop. Hmm. Uh, I think the songwriting is not quite up to par. The melodies aren't as memorable. There's no I Want to Be Your Dog. There's no TVI on this, on this record in terms of the strong, melodic sense. Some of the lyrics are terrific. They're funny. Some of the lyrics are really dumb. So I think Iggy is kind of like the, the wild card in this record. Iggy's stronger performances definitely rank with not exceeding the Stooges' best, but certainly in the same ballpark and some of the weaker material. I think, again, uh, Iggy not quite up to par in the lyrics department or in the vocal department with the melodies. Well, I, I completely disagree. This album is an embarrassment. It's a disaster. It's a <laughs> horrible disappointment. And your hero worship uh, is prompting you to be way too kind. You know it. A year from now, you will never play this record again. And you will listen continually, as we have since uh, forever, to the three Stooges albums that came out in the band's original incarnation. I disagree about Scott Ashton. I think he and Mike Watt phone it in. I think the thing that made those original Stooges albums so incredible was in large part the very unique rhythm. We talked about it with Ron Ashton. 1969, No Fun, I Want to Be Your Dog. The syncopated Bo Diddley grooves that characterized, in particular, the first two albums, there's none of that here. This is a generic rhythm section that could be playing for good Charlotte. Oh, my God. Even worse, uh, you know, Ron Ashton is great. Ron Ashton has always been great. I would rather listen to his other bands, you know, the non-British New Order or Destroy All Monsters, the stuff he did after the Stooges. People forget about that. Iggy is is wonderful. Iggy can can take one word, one syllable, one growl and turn it into an entire song. But instead, he tried to write songs, and that's a bad idea. He's pushing very easy buttons for outrage here in terms of sex and race. I'm offended, and I'm not easily offended. I'm offended by the stupidity and the just easy button pushing of trolling and Mexican guy. I do not want to hear him name check his own band again and again as he does. You know, we're the Stooges. I don't want to hear him sing about ATMs. It's but funny. Most of, no, 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 it's not funny. It's humor, tired. sense of humor. Look, this is a guy who turns 60 in a couple of weeks, and much of this record is still about living fast and dying young. Iggy, you made it. You didn't die young. You're a lot. You're, you're going to be sixty. You're. You can join ARP and sing Buzzcock songs. You know, it's a pathetic record. It's sad. I love the Stooges, but this is on the list of bad punk reunions. Sex Pistols, Television X, not good punk reunions. There were far fewer, like Wire, Buzzcocks, Mission to Burma. It could have gone either way. I'm sad to say they dropped the ball. It's a trash it record. Oh, Buy it, burn nuts. it, trash it, trash it record. Nuts. I'll take this record over Fallout Boy, which you seem to love compared to this. The lyrics Any are day. better. Yeah. Yeah, and the grooves are better. Oh, come on. Rate this record, please. Stop equivocating. You're going to tell people to buy this record no, for no, cash no. money? No, no, no. I came up right up front. There's, there's three better <laughs> Stooges. There's three better Stooges <laughs> records out there that you need to own yeah. before you buy this record. I would say this is a burn it record. <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We'll be back in a minute with a review of the new solo album from former Luscious Jackson singer Jill Kniff and my Desert Island jukebox pick.
You gave me one chance. You said do or die. I followed you. I followed you. I followed you. Up five flights on a warm night. I followed you into the black light. Time fixed. Clocks ticked. You gave me chances. Subterranean advances. I'll follow you. I'll follow you. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and that voice you hear is from Jill Kniff, a New York singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, best known probably originally as a member of Luscious Jackson. Who was Luscious Jackson? Greg, they're back in the news. Uh, There's a Greatest Hits album that just came out. Kind of ironic, because they only ever had one hit that charted. (laughs) Naked Eye made it to number 36 on the Billboard charts in 1997. Otherwise, Luscious Jackson was forever the uh, Little Sister Band. If the Stooges were the Little Brother Band of the MC5, uh, Luscious Jackson was the Little Sister Band of the Beastie Boys. <laughs> uh, they kind of got their start under the tutelage of the Beastie Boys and uh, came together, put out one uh, really cool album that was kind of rough and tumble and, and home recorded. Then uh, their masterpiece in 96, Fever In, Fever Out, produced by Daniel Lanois, one more album, the band broke up. I haven't been heard from since. Now here we have this Greatest Hits uh, compilation, and we have Jill Kniff coming back with an album called City Beach. It's great to have them back. I always thought this was one of the most underrated groups of women or musicians, period, throughout the alternative era. I've been waiting uh, for some signs of life for some time, and now here we have it. Let's hear a track from this album. I think it kind of epitomizes the feel and the subject matter of the disc. This is Jill Kniff, the album City Beach. The song is called Lady. Easy girls. Here's a song for lazy girls and laid back boys. Who never quite Girls from the solo debut by Jill Kniff. Uh, the name of the record is City Beach. She kind of sums up what her objective is in that uh, album title. I think she's trying to make a, a chilled out uh, kind of urban 
groove record. Uh, reminds me a little bit of the mid-90s trip-hop thing that was happening in England, mm. almost as if she's uh, trying to do a Morchiba record for 2007. Morchiba, a trio out of England that was uh, specializing in these kind of laid-back, chilled-out beats, simmering grooves, uh, grooves that never quite got to the point where they were boiling over but percolating throughout the entire record. And sensual. This is her attempt to make that kind of a record. I liked Luscious Jackson. I think they brought a hip-hop sensibility to the rock quartet, much in the same way that the Beastie Boys did on some of their early 90s records like Ill Communication. But I hear none of that inventiveness and that attitude here. Jill has taken a few years off to start a family, and I think this uh, this album is sort of influenced by the fact that she's become a mother twice over, and, and, and there's sort of a mellow, motherly mood about this record. But what I really find unlistenable is the lack of creativity, the ambition, the artistry in this record. It's a very slow-moving record. It's kind of sleep-inducing. I'm, I'm reminded of Nina Gordon when she oh, was in no. Baruch Assault, oh. and she was rocking out, oh. and there was some attitude there. No. And then she went on to make these kind Unfair. of lounge Unfair. singer albums. I'm sensing the same Lobo. thing going on here with Jill Kanef. Uh, 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 this uh, is a total waste of time, Yeah, Jim. you're just mad because I dissed the Stooges album, all right? Let, let me set you straight on a couple things. The one disadvantage this album has is it's coming out at the wrong time of year. This is an album for the dog days of August when it's 110 <laughs> degrees in New York City and when the sun is beginning to set, you go up on the roof, you know, and you oh, strip I... down and you lay there in the warm breeze <laughs> and below you hear this mix of salsa and hip-hop and rock. You know, maybe you have your acoustic guitar and you add that to the mix. That's what this album is about. This is a great Makeout album. This is a very sensual, very sexy, very wow. seductive album. It does flow from what Luscious Jackson did. If you loved Fever In, Fever Out, as I do, I will stand on this and say that is one of the 10 or 20 best albums that the entire alternative era produced. Wow. It's a great record uh, produced by your hero, Daniel Anwar. You should appreciate that. <laughs> All you people who are buying this Nora Jones album, what's it sold? $17 billion so far, something like that. All right. You think you want a sensual, seductive, crooning, gentle record. I mean, this album City Beach by Jill Kniff is a million times better than Nora Jones. I love this record. Buy it, burn it, trash it. It's a buy it record. Hey, Nora Jones at least has some ambition in her record. I, I gotta say, Jill phoned this one in. This is one of those records where I go, didn't I used to like this artist? And why? Because uh, I don't hear any of those qualities in this record at all. It's a trash it for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Now's the part of Sound Opinions where each week either Greg or I take a turn popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, playing you a track we cannot live without, at least this week. And uh, it's your turn, Mr. I Hate Jill Kniff, Cot. <laughs> Well, I have to say, Jim, this week I'm uh, inspired by the uh, Oscar Awards, if you could call it that, inspired. I'm not sure inspired is exactly the right word I'm looking for. I'm continually baffled by the Oscars they hand out for the best uh, music in a, in a film during the past year. This year, uh, Melissa Etheridge won an Oscar for, uh, for a mediocre song. I was thrilled to see Ennio Morricone honored by the Academy Awards for uh, Lifetime Achievement. He is only the second composer to be so honored and well worthy of that honor, I think. Marconi 
made his name with those spaghetti western soundtracks of the 60s. What were the spaghetti westerns? They were so called because they were westerns that were made by Italian studios and mostly filmed in Spain. So how's that for a geographical and cultural disconnect? Morricone was based in Rome. He'd never been to the American West, and yet he wrote these evocative scores for these movies. And I think one of the reasons they worked is that they were basically Italian operas about America. These movies with operatic scores, larger-than-life characters, biblical storylines of sin, revenge, death, and redemption, and these vast epic landscapes. And there's Clint Eastwood traipsing around you know, for $15,000 a movie making these now classic movies, including A Fistful of Dollars, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, etc., etc., Morricone wrote these amazing soundtracks for these. When people talk, us critics like to use the word cinematic as an adjective, Jim. I think a lot of times when music critics use that word, they're thinking about Morricone and how he made sound evoke feeling and imagery in the mind. You could listen to one of Morricone's soundtracks and get an entire picture of these movies in your head. The way he used sound effects, the way he used orchestration, the way he used those trebly guitar lines. His secret weapon, he actually had one guy in the studio with him performing most of these instruments. A self-taught virtuoso by the name of Alessandro Alessandroni. A virtual one-man band of the Spaghetti Western. He was playing mm-hmm. all those cool guitar lines. He was doing all those cool whistling lines. <laughs> that, you know, the sound of the coyotes, the owls hooting. You can hear it all in this track from the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's the main theme from that 1966 movie directed by Sergio Leone and starring Clint Eastwood on Sound Opinions.
Ennio Morricone, that's Greg Cott's Desert Island jukebox pick. Glad to see you acknowledging the genius of my people, <laughs> Greg. Speaking of Desert Island jukebox picks, what do we have next week? Something special. Yeah, next week, Jim, we've got a plethora of Desert Island jukebox picks, but not from us, but uh, from the guests we've had in the Sound Opinion studio here, members of Radiohead, Julian Casablancas of The Strokes, Robin Hitchcock, Peter Buck, John Bryan, Lupe Fiasco. They all tell us what records they cannot live without. Got some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. We get some legal assistance from Dino Armiros. And uh, Tori Southside Malatia is a man who uh, doesn't want to be your dog, but he would have made a great stooge, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you think you would have helped him on this new record, Jim? Uh, yeah, they needed help. In case you missed any of our recent shows, here are some of the albums we've reviewed on Sound Opinions. That is Lucinda Williams with a song called Are You Alright that kicks off her eighth album in 28 years. Uh, it's called West. And uh, here's a woman who takes her time between records. She does not hurry <laughs> any album that she's ever made, and this is a typical example of that. Are you alright? All of a sudden you went away. Are you alright? I hope you come back around someday. Are you alright? The album for me is a little bit oppressive almost with its downer vibe. Everything is in slow to mid-tempo at best. There's this melancholy that, that permeates the disc, and I can't get 100% behind it because of that. Mm-hmm. She does have a great voice, and this album sounds incredible. There are moments like Come On, I think is the best, but as a whole, I'd have to say it's it's a burn-it record. As a songwriter, she's terrific. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but I think sonically is where she needs to work on her game, and I think with Wilner, she's taking a step in that direction. I think she needs to go further next time, so I'm with you. It's a burn-it record for me, too, Jim. You can hear all of our album reviews at soundopinions.org. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Hey guys, this is Alan from Apex, North Carolina. I just listened to your show about Lucinda Williams, and you really missed the point on Lucinda Williams. Look at Pineola, listen to Pineola, you know, listen to cuts off of every album she's made. It is dark. It's always been dark. She's a master. Certainly not a burn it, but a buy it. Enjoy the show. Thanks. Hi, this is Nancy Donahue. I'm in Bronx, New York, and I was just listening to your show with Lily Allen, and I just want to comment on the the message that you played on the air with the guy who didn't like her, if he doesn't like her album, he hasn't heard the album. It is fracking brilliant. I have been obsessed with her. She is wonderful. I like the whole idea that her songs are all... If you just listen to the music, it's so upbeat. 
but when you actually listen to the words, it is like the exact opposite. your opinion on sound opinions call our hotline 1-888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media